Well, let's take a look now at the book of James and where we're going to be headed, just so you know. Uh, we're going to go through, through the entire book of James. About halfway through, we're going to take a break and do a four-week series called Why Believe and just deal with some of the issues in, in our uh, everyday lives about is there any grounding at all for a biblical worldview in dialogue with the culture around us and some people who might reject the very notion of God and certainly that the Bible is his word. We're going to spend some time thinking through that, uh, hopefully equipping you, uh, hopefully a venue as well for people who don't believe that to come and to, and to consider in a way that's hopefully gracious and, uh, and hopefully winsome and convicting as well. So that's where we'll be headed, but we're starting here with, the, with James in chapter one. We're gonna cover the first eight verses this morning. So I invite you to read with me and, and have, uh, have this open up. I think it's helpful. We do have some PowerPoint, but there's something about looking at it either uh, physically or on whatever device you're using to look at it. 11, uh, page 1196 in the Black Bibles that are in front of you, if you don't have your own That'll, that'll get you to where you need to be just after the book of, of Hebrews uh, towards the end of the Bible. So 1196, this is God's word. Let's read through it first and then consider it. So here's what we read. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. Greetings. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. But when he asks, he must believe and not doubt, because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That man should not think he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all he does. This is the, the word of God. Well, you know, James just doesn't have a lot of time to sit and talk about things that don't apply to life. I mean, there's kind of, I think all of theology is practical, but sometimes it takes some work to get to the practice of it as well. And James just gets right down to brass tacks. So he's the kind of person who says, I don't have time to talk about these kind of high theoretical concepts. Let's get to business of you living out what you say is a faith that makes a difference in everyday life. So he's very disruptive. Like Uber, it comes along and disrupts the economy a little bit. Or Amazon, when they started doing everything. D d disruptive models. And James says, I'm going to disrupt your faith just a little bit as well. And we were, we were talking about India earlier. I remember the first time I went to the Taj Mahal with uh, Ashish and Partners India. And, of course, they're selling all kinds of things outside. Uh, and one of the things I was looking for is souvenirs to bring back for my kids. And at, at the time, one of my children was collecting snow globes. So, interestingly enough, they had a snow globe at the Taj Mahal. Now, if it wasn't remotely close to winter when I bought it, nor does it ever get below freezing there, as far as I know. Has it ever snowed in Agra, India? Nah, it just doesn't happen. It's a little disconnect there. But nonetheless, you know... The, uh, the snow globes, kind of what they're like, they're real you know, interesting to, to look at, certain Taj Mahal in there, but they're designed for you to shake them up, and then all the little, you know, white stuff goes flying around, and it's very, very pretty, and then it settles. Um, and a snow globe, of course, is pretty, but its design is to have those things kind of go, and the only way you can get there is by shaking it up. 
And that's what I think James is doing here. He's saying your faith, those of you who say you have faith, say you're following God, sometimes gets put on a shelf like a snow globe and needs to be taken off and shaken up because that's exactly where faith, where faith grows and, and how faith is applied to all of life. So he's very disruptive and he's, he's going to be hitting hard hitting and get right to, does your faith really makes a difference because it will be stagnant if it's not shaken. So the question for you is, does your faith really make a difference? If you claim that you have faith, that you're a follower of Christ, that you believe in God, what difference does that really make? And James will say, if it doesn't, it's absolutely useless. Stop wasting your time. <laughs> And if it does, if you're concerned by that, if you're a little, uh, a sense of disconnect in your own soul, like what does it, is it making a difference? And if that doesn't bother you, then that's a problem. If it does, then welcome. Welcome to the book of James. Welcome to the storyline of the Bible. Uh, because that's what we're doing. God is calling us to, to be disrupted all the time. And James is, gonna, is going to take us there. Uh, and he begins by taking something that is common to every person, trials, and he says, this is how you're supposed to think about difficulties if you're a follower of Christ. So in verse 1, then, trials become joy, we're calling this. We see him identifying himself. So the identity of the author. And if, uh, we'll just go verse by verse here. We see James is a servant of Christ and of God. Who is this James? If you're to read, there are several James in, in the Bible that, that this could be. Uh, it could be you know, this James or that. Some think it's James, the brother uh, of Jesus. It's probably the most broad conclusion that you'll, you'll discover. But what it was interesting is that he doesn't say that. He's not interested in identifying which particular James he is. Maybe the churches receiving the letter would know. His concern is not with the identity there in terms of that relationship, but with his relationship with God. How does he see himself? What is his role? What's his function? How does he identify himself here? Is James a servant of Christ and of God. And that word servant, I put it there in the Greek, is doulos. Some of you probably recognize that. It can be translated as slave. A bond servant, a slave, a willing and humble subject who has gone into submission to a master and said, I will do your will, not mine. That's what it's like to be a slave. A master, you're subjected to the master's will. And James is saying, that's my view of who I am. I'm a doulos, a servant of God and of Christ. So it's not about my agenda. We're not talking about building my kingdom. It's God's kingdom. It's God's agenda. And automatically, if you really were to spend some time just examining that word, it starts stripping us of the autonomy that we see so rampant, so present in our North American, Western 21st century existence. It's all about me, my fulfillment, my satisfaction. And James says, that's not how I view myself. I'm a servant. I'm a slave of Christ and of God, so I'm doing what he wants. It's his agenda that I'm concerned about. So I don't think James probably spent a lot of time saying, I deserve this. You know, returning things to a store that says, I deserve to be recompensed for this faulty product. You know, and there's, there's right things to do, obviously, in our economy too, but his mentality was more like, I'm just here to serve Christ, whatever may come. The very word itself lends itself to saying it's not about me. 
It's about Christ. I, I remember in high school when I first became a follower of Jesus, which was many, many moons ago, of course, but back in the um, late 80s, I suppose. Yeah. Uh, when, I was, when I was in high school, I was a sophomore in high school, and one of the things, God really had his hand on that community. I was overseas living in Germany. And one of the concerns, as God got a hold of my heart, that I heard other people talking about, and of course, I was really jazzed about this newfound faith, so I was sharing it with other people uh, a lot, and just saying, because I, I, you know, I, I knew it. It wasn't, it wasn't like I embraced it because my life was an absolute disaster. I don't have a, a storyline like that. It was just Christ was so lovely. <laughs> I was so compelled by this vision that, uh, of, of a, a Christ and a Redeemer and the purpose in life that he offered and the assurance, all that stuff that I ran to him. And, of course, he convicted me of sin, and I wanted other people to know it as well. And one of the things I often heard was, like, if I give my life to Christ, then what about me? You know, like, I'll become less of a person. He's, he's asking, he's going to change me in a way that's not good. And, of course, the whole story of the Bible is, like, actually, if the Bible is true, you don't really fully become yourself until you give your life to God. Because he's got designs for you you can never really know until you've surrendered to him. Otherwise, you're just building your own kingdom. And this fear of becoming less, giving your heart to Christ, doesn't pan out according to the biblical worldview. You actually become more. You see things as they're supposed to be, or at least you begin that process as well. So James is making himself a willing servant to the one who's going to make him all he was supposed to be in relationship to God and others. And the interesting thing here, too, is you say, maybe I don't want to be a, a doulos, a slave. It's an offensive word. Maybe to some more than others. But interestingly enough, James is only doing what his Savior has already done. There's a raccoon right there. <laughs> it's a big raccoon right behind that HVAC system now. Look at it. Look at these climbing up. You see him? Look at it. Look at it. Look at that guy. He's going up the... You see that? Wow, that's crazy. By the way, by the way, my personality type, and maybe you've heard this before, ENFP, they have prayers associated with each one. Um, Myers-Briggs type stuff. Mine is, Lord, help me to focus on one thing. Hey, look, a bird. <laughs> Ing at a time is how it ends. So that's a perfect illustration of that, too. Okay, so anyway, that's what I was saying, doulos, that, that word, doulos, servant, is exactly the same word used in Philippians chapter 2 of Jesus when it says he took the very nature of a doulos and he became obedient to death, even death on a cross. So he's not asking you to do something he hasn't already done. And believe me, he deserved more than you do <laughs> if you're getting on the deserving side of things because he was perfect. He'd never sinned. And you have. So James sees himself as a duo. Did everybody see that? That was cool. I mean, in the middle of the day, a giant, that thing was big. All right. So that's the identity of the author. Now, who's he writing to? Identity of the audience. This is, he says in the next section, to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. This is Old Testament language, the 12 tribes of Israel. If you open your Bible and you read from Genesis on, you're going to read all about that. So there's this 
perhaps Jewish slant on this letter, but he's writing to Christians, not to those who were historically just Jewish, but to those who've been engrafted into Christ as well. And, and just like Peter does, so you've got James, and then you also have Peter, another pillar of the New Testament church. In his letter, he repurposes that idea of the tribes of Israel and being scattered and says it applies to the people of God just like it did then. But the people of God now are those who are elect, those who've embraced Christ, who've come to faith in him. And Paul himself in Galatians 6.16 would speak of the Israel of God, the, the church. You've got three New Testament writers saying this image of the 12 tribes is now those who have been, who are in Christ. So it's, I would argue, the church. He's writing to this church. This church has been scattered, and so is Peter, and so does Paul. So these 12 tribes scattered among the nations, it seems, are the very people of God who have been called into relationship with him. The uh, diaspora, it says here. Scattered, that's what it means. Scattered among the nations. You can look back as far as Genesis 12 with Abraham to see that this was God's plan all along. He says, I'll make you into a great nation. I'll bless you. I'll make your name great and you'll be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So God called Abram, changed his name to Abraham, said, I'm gonna bless you so that you can be a blessing to other nations as well. Abraham, the father of Israel, physical Israel in the Old Testament. So now the father spiritually of those who are believers in Christ. And what's the design for you to be a blessing to others? And how can you do that? If you're only gathered together, you are to be scattered. And God himself historically has flung his people because guess what? Left to our own devices, we just want to gather together. The church is a home and a mission. The home part's great. Sometimes. Most of the time, we just want to be with each other. But God says, no, go. That's what he says in the, uh, the Great Commission. Go. That's the first part of the Great Commission. Go. And you got to go. Like, leave. Get out of here. Because that's where you're supposed to be. Not just gathered together unless it's to be equipped for the going. So really all throughout the Bible, we are a people scattered, the church. Jesus comes and he, he, you know, he, he does his work. He, he dies, he's sacrificed, and he raises again from the dead. And the first time you see him interacting with his gathered disciples huddled together in a room, he says, hey, just as the Father sent me, so I'm sending you. Go. He makes it clear in Acts 1-8 when he's ascending to the right father, right hand of the Father in heaven. He says, you know why I'm doing this? You know, so I'm leaving and I'm giving you the Spirit. So now you can go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth and be my witnesses. Go! That's, the, that's who he's writing to, those who have been scattered. And that means our concept of church extends well beyond the one and a half hours or so that we get together on a Sunday morning. We live out our faith 24-7. You're supposed to live out your faith 24-7. We are here so that you can be equipped to live it out in time and space wherever you happen to be. And that doesn't matter if you're employed or a student, wherever you are. God has you where you are, your neighborhood, your employment, your ethnic background, your life stage, for a reason. And Peter adds another dimension to the idea of our scatteredness as well. 
If you look at Peter, in, in 1 Peter 2, he says, we're strangers on this earth. It's the idea here that is subtly being communicated by James as well. We're just sojourners passing through. So our experience on this earth is significant, but it's just temporary. So you have to live, if you want to get what James is saying, with the mentality from the beginning that you're a servant and you're only here on temporary duty. And if you don't get those two things, pretty much the rest of the stuff you're going to have a problem with. But if you get those and you begin getting them more because we're all in the process of getting it more as time goes on, then you're going to be rightly postured to benefit from what James is saying. He is after a mentality that's radically different from those who don't have this mentality, who think this is all there is, who believe this kingdom this time on earth is to build my own kingdom. And of course, that seeps into the church quite a bit too. And James says, I'm tired of it seeping into the church, so wake up and start acting like you're supposed to. Now he begins uh, right from the beginning with this, uh, this wonderful treatment of trials. He says, this faith ought to shape the way you receive in your process and you persevere hard things. When they come, because they will. Someone who is a servant, a temporary resident, can, according to verse 2, look at these things very differently, and this is what he says. You have the opportunity to consider it pure joy. My brothers, he uses that word a lot, family, you can consider it pure joy whenever you face trials of many kinds. So consider it, counting it, that suggests a choice. You've got a trial in front of you, something's come. He says, what are you going to do with that? You're, you can choose to count it as joy, or you can choose to count it as something very opposite, cumbersome, a burden, get it out of the way, you know, God's curse on me. He says, count it, consider it joy. Now joy, it's worked out in other places in the scriptures, I would argue, is the deep, deep assurance that God is at work. And you have to have that. It's hard to see, I know. But this is a, you see how different this mentality is? Joy is not happiness like you're feigning being excited about the trouble that you're experiencing. It is the deep assurance that you know God is at work. That's something that people who don't have a biblical worldview simply can't call upon. How do I reckon this moment? And what can I consider this as? Maybe just, you know, random, maybe whatever. But for the believer, the follower of Christ, James says, you can consider it joy. The deep assurance, God's at work. And he unpacks that a little bit more and tells us more about how we look at that process in the verses to come. And he says, not only can you consider it pure joy, but you can consider it pure joy whenever you face trials of many kinds. Many colored in the Greek. It, it's got different shapes and sizes. So I'm curious, audience participation. Think about a trial for a second. Anything. Any, I don't care what comes from, just if you're brave enough, let's think about some trials. What would you consider a trial? Of many kinds. What do you think is a trial in your life? Empty cabinets. What's that? Okay, children who are, maybe, yeah, who are going in a different direction than your heart's desire. Anything else? Sickness. Being sick, yeah. Unemployment. Yep, unemployment. 
Pardon me? A broken down car. People were speaking their hearts. Yeah. What about a hangnail? Is that a trial? I mean, minor, it's minor, but would you say, oh, man, this is a trial this morning because I'm constantly thinking about how painful my finger is. You think, think that doesn't apply here? Tiny little things? Is God only taught, is this only big things like, you know, unemployment? Or is it everything? Is it, obviously, we have in view here too, if you adopt this faith, you may suffer something for it. That's included. But this, poly, this idea of many circumstances, it doesn't matter how big it seems to me, at least that James is saying, the trial is. It can be leveraged in this way as something that you can count as joy, big or small. See, faith is comprehensive. It addresses absolutely every spec, aspect of life. Big, big things, super small things. It's not just the big, it's also the small. It includes that as well. This is a comprehensive vision for what life of faith looks like. Trials of any sort, a wide perspective. So basically he's talking about a mindset that accompanies every sort of hardship. You can actually have joy in those moments. So the question then is, how can trials become joy? Since we've basically said, today you're going to experience about 5,000 opportunities to, to apply this, or at least some, a couple very clear ones. How do you do it? Well, he says, first, here's the mindset you have. You can know that these trials are testing your faith, big and small. That's what he says in verse 3. He says, you can have joy because you know, gnosko, you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. So my faith is somehow being tested. Trials are a good time to ask, how does my faith make a difference? Is it real? How do I make it real in this moment that's right in front of me? Maybe you talk a big talk about faith, but trials are the great revealer of its measure. Do you really have faith? How are you exercising that faith? What difference does it make in the moment? It's made me think of the parable of the sower or of the soils, as it's sometimes called, um, where Jesus uh, talks uh, about and I think I've got this out of place, and this is what happens when you arrive really late at night and do it. So, uh, <clears throat> so just in, in Mark chapter 4, you might be familiar with this. Some like seed uh, thrown on rocky places. So there's this picture of a farmer going out throwing seed out. And the seed is God's word. This kind of word right here that you can have trial, uh, joys, you can have joy in the midst of trials. He throws that out. You receive it. And some of that seed is thrown on rocky places where they hear the word at once and receive it with joy. These are people who listen to God's word and are set free by it initially. But since they have no root, they only last a short time. So it never really grows very deep. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. Still others, like seeds sown among thorns, hear the word. But the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desires for other things come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. Trials. Those trials didn't lead to fruitfulness. They led to distraction. And over the long haul, trials reveal the genuineness of our faith or how deeply rooted we really are in it. At the same time, they're the very opportunity for growing in that faith. You can't avoid the trial. Questions: question is, what are you going to do with it? And over time, you'll see 
How, how deep is the measure of my faith? Am I using this, letting this God use this to do the second thing, which is in the same verse? Develop perseverance. My faith, faith is being tested. Will it help me lead to developing perseverance? You can't develop perseverance without going through trials. It just doesn't work that way. So if you want to grow in your faith, you know what you're saying, right? Give me trials that are going to test me. They're going to make me grow. They're going to impress me. And it's, it's a hard, but it's a good prayer. The Greek word for perseverance is, means literally to bear up under. You know, you've got to bear up under something so that you can go longer in it. It's, think of running, for those of you who are running. If I told uh, you right now to go out and run a 10K, six miles, I don't know how many people think they could do that. I, I may or may not make it. Um, and I'd suffer for days afterwards. But if I start training and go a little bit more and more and more, and pretty soon I could run six miles and, and, and not feel it the next day. But I'll never get there unless I do these things. And God's saying, hey, you got this? You want to run a 10K? It's going to hurt while you're getting there along the way. And if you give up, you'll never run it. He said that's a picture of faith. You want to grow? You want to be mature? And complete, okay, here's my training program. Every single trial that comes your way <laughs> is designed somehow and at times mysteriously as your training program. Given by God, specifically made for you. You know that's what it's like for running. You get a, a personal coach who's after you all the time saying, here's what you do. Are you going to do it or not? Oh, God's your personal coach. Coming along saying, you want to grow in faith? Well, here's, we're going to develop perseverance in you. And that word perseverance, too, it's translated all kinds of ways if you read the commentaries. Staying power, endurance, stickability, fortitude, toughness, grit. If you want to, you have got to develop grit. When it gets hard, don't give up. We wouldn't have much of a Super Bowl to watch later, for those of you who care at all about it, if some of those people didn't have this sense of perseverance, the two-a-days, right? And the endless practice. Same thing for cross-country. If you go to a cross-country race and you make it look so easy, right, until you try it yourself. But people like me notice the gator who's out in front. There's a guy with a gator, just kind of running like everybody's following him. He's not tired after any race. All those people behind him are going up and down and, you know, exhausted afterwards and collapse, and he just goes out for another run. Like that, right, too? And most of us think the Christian life's being on the gator ride. And James says it's not. You're back there in the trenches. And if you give up when you're in the trenches, you're never going to get anywhere. So that's what he says. You can know, you can know these things at least. Your faith is being tested and your perseverance is being developed. Now, third thing that he says about trials. Know they have a goal in mind, which is your maturity. And that's what he says in verse 4. Perseverance, this grit, must finish its work. Why? So that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. You really want to grow? Can't do it without trials. So leverage trials of all kinds for that purpose. And the word 
telos, for those of you who know this or into philosophy, teleology, what's the goal, what's the purpose, what's the end in mind? It appears twice in this verse. There is a goal here. You have to have the end in mind. And, and that makes all the difference in the world. If you just think you're suffering for suffering's sake with no purpose whatsoever, you won't last very long. Even in God's mysterious ways, if you know and can latch on to, he's doing something even if I can't see it. That gives you some more grit. So he says, I haven't left you alone. I'm headed, you're headed somewhere. You're a sojourner with a destination. You're not just wandering around. So keep your eyes on that end. That's what Jesus even says, you know. Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame. Even Jesus, with the cross before him, had joy that was set. He knew what he was accomplishing. So this takes... You know, believing God is doing something here. You may not be able to get it all together. Keep that in mind. And the reason you need to do that is because if you don't, you'll lose strength for the journey. You've got to know where you're headed. And this is something the believer, James says, can have. You can be assured that God is doing something. You can endure almost anything if you think there's a good goal in mind. Some of you have heard of Slava Mirovich, I guess, The Long Walk. Did anybody read that book? I read it a handful of years ago. It was a story of a guy who was Polish and he had been taken by uh, uh, the Russians and, and their conflict in the mid-50s and put into a Siberian camp and he escapes and tells the story of escaping with five others and they travel. Some are lost along the way uh, through, the, uh, through Siberia and it's wintry, then through the Gobi Desert and then through the Himalayas and all the way 4,000 miles to India where they're rescued. And I was reading a little bit more updated about this that you know, some have disputed the validity of that story. Others have claimed they were the person. And so who knows what's really going on there. But I'll tell you what, when I read that book, I thought, oh, I've got nothing compared to that, right? I mean, it's hard not to compare our circumstances. The enduring nature of the human spirit. You talk about perseverance. That's amazing stuff. And the difference between somebody like him and those who are believers of course, as inspiring as that kind of perseverance might be, is it's not, it's not the complete picture. He's relying pretty much on just self, right? And you can do that. You can go a long way in this life just relying on yourself. James doesn't give us that option from a biblical perspective. He's saying if you really want to adopt this mentality, you have to realize you're not going to get very far or you're going to get to the wrong place if you don't have a divine perspective in mind. And so that's what he tells us forth. No, they require wisdom from God. If you're suffering trials, this is the entryway, the pathway for the believer, the follower of Jesus. They require wisdom from him. What he says in the next verse, if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault and it will be given to him. I believe there's a direct connection here between verse 5 and what we have just discussed, especially since he revisits trials in verse 12. And if that's a proper reading, then James is saying, in order for you to have this view of life presented in verses 2 through 4, trials can become joy. You have to have wisdom. And this perspective on life, this wisdom, which is knowledge, you know what verse, verses 2 and through, through 4 say. Knowledge being rightly applied, now I'm actually going to live this way. It comes from God. And if you lack that insight, then ask God for it, he says. I mean, how simple can it get? 
ask God to give you this perspective in life. And sort of, I would say like the, like the widow who goes to the unjust judge, you may have to ask multiple times. That could be a testing of your faith as well. Keep asking, keep asking. This is the demonstration of faith, the way God is growing us up as well. But he tells us, ask if you lack that insight. Because ultimately, then, we see that trials are drawing us into dependence on God. In order to face them well, we must gain insight from him. We have to depend on him. I was just thinking with a friend through the events of the fall, somebody who hadn't heard me share at all about this panic attack that I had back in the fall, which is a brand new experience for me. I'm a pretty easygoing kind of guy. And uh, anxiety is nothing that I'd say I've ever struggled with. And through a course of things, I can tell you more about it uh, offline if you want to hear more, I ended up having a panic attack. I ended up in the emergency room on a hospital run being told you're completely healthy. You struggle with anxiety. No, 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 no. Do the tests again. There's something wrong with me. Like, yeah, yeah, you've got something wrong, but there's nothing we can fix, basically, you know. So just wrestling with that and feeling like, you know, all the, uh, my, my natural reliance, the natural gifts God has given me that allow me to flourish were stripped. Not being able to talk to people for about three or four days. Weird stuff. And some of you heard about that, but real, really, and hard. And just kind of healing from that significantly, and then it was gone, and then all of a sudden, there it is again. I'm like, do not let this be a lifelong struggle. I am begging you, because it's awful. And when you're experiencing that, some of you have no idea what I'm talking about. Some of you might. But I can tell you that a minute feels like an hour when, when you're in the midst of that. It, it's so hard. And so reading 2 Corinthians at the beginning of this year, chapter 1, verse 9. In our hearts, we felt the sentence of death. To me, that describes somebody struggling with anxiety. You feel, it feels like a sentence of death. It's just, you, it's awful. And there are strategies and, and coping mechanisms. Yes, prayer is one of them. And calling out to God, for sure. But you know what he says in 2 Corinthians 1, 9? In your heart, you felt the sentence of death. But this happened so that you may not rely on yourselves, but on God who raises from the dead. So I'm like, okay, I don't like this, but I can tell you, in those moments when I felt like I couldn't, could barely breathe, literally every moment saying, God, help me breathe. Walking around, you know, just saying, help me get through the next moment. I can tell you, I've never relied on God as much as I did in the, at that time. And give me one week of not experiencing it, I've completely forgotten. <laughs> I'm, no, I'm no longer crawling out, calling out to God just for strength to breathe. I got things to do. And so in God's mysterious providence, he sometimes strips us of our self-reliance and says, I'm calling you to rely on me. And we forget. And trials have a tendency to do that, to remind us where we're slowly being self-sufficient and beginning to build our own kingdoms. And God says, it's not, it doesn't work that way. I'm calling you to deeper dependence on me. This is one of the things that trials do. It don't have to. You can go a different path. You can do different things with trials too. But God says, if you want to grow through the book of James, this is what it looks like. I'm drawing you to dependence on me so that if you're lacking wisdom, you don't even know how to proceed or how to look at these trials right, just ask. It's there for the taking. 
And the good news here I, lo I love in this verse as well is that God will listen. You know, it says right here, ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault and it will be given to him. He hears that prayer. And not only that, he's giving, it's the giving God. He gives to those generously. And he gives graciously without finding fault. You don't have to fear when you come to God and say, God, my faith is really small, I'm sorry. He's not going to rebuke you. He's going to say, I give to people like that without finding fault. That's the status of heart I'm looking for. It's the proud ones who won't come, he's got issues with. <laughs> it's the ones who are humbled. So this is a pathway even for making mistakes, right? For saying, I haven't persevered, I've fallen. God says, that's the kind of person I give wisdom to, strangely. So it's not like you have to be perfect and then you can come to God for more perfection. It doesn't work that way. There's a lot of honesty here because if you're not honest about it, you're, you waver in your faith and you show that you're pretty much unstable in all you do like a wave of the sea and you're really not believing God. You're believing yourself for the fix. So come empty-handed to God and that's what he says last here. Know that that Trials invite us into deeper belief in God's provision. When he asks, he must believe and not doubt, because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That man should not think he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all he does. And here I feel we end up in the same place we do so many other times, where you have to kind of read a verse like that and say, God, help my unbelief. <laughs> help it. Because I know I'm like that sometimes. I mean, that's me. But just, you know, hedging my bets and not really fully trusting or even when it doesn't happen immediately on my time frame, wondering if he's really listening or if these verses are really true. And being honest about that with him too. That's me. Help my unbelief. I don't want to be like a wave of the sea, but I am. I don't want to be double-minded, but I am. And no wonder I feel so, so unstable sometimes in my walk with God. Maybe you do too. Doubt, in this sense, is the opposite of faith. Faith says, I'll believe, even when I can't see or understand. And doubt says, I won't believe because I can't see or understand. And so God's testing our faith here. Even at this point, and if that bothers you, if you sense an undivided heart or the seeds of doubt, where do you go with that? What do you do? I was thinking of Mark chapter 4. We're almost done. We read about Jesus. He's in a boat with his disciples. And you remember this story, maybe this furious squall comes up. That was a trial, by the way. These are hardened fishermen who are scared for their lives. A difficult circumstance. And you remember what Jesus is doing as the waves break over the boat and it's nearly swamped. He's sleeping, right, on a cushion. And they wake him up. And they shake him. And they say, and he gets up, he rebukes the wind, and he says to the waves, quiet, be still. This image came to mind with the wave of the sea tossing around. Where do we go with that? To the one who stills the waves. Jesus says, quiet, be still. The wind died down. It was completely calm. He said to his disciples, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? Help my unbelief. Because the answer, the implicit answer is like, yeah, no, we, we're struggling with this. And he is in the boat with them. It's not like then he says, we'll see you later. You guys failed. Sayonara. I'm walking on the water, leaving you in the squall. He's there with them. He quiets the waves. 
So we go to Christ. Our elder brother can sympathize with our weaknesses. We can find grace in our time of need to give us strength to persevere. And even to count trials as joy. I'm going to close with the story of uh, Eliza Davis George. I don't know if anybody has heard of her. Seems a fitting place to end in this respect. She was born in 1879 to parents who were former slaves. And she felt called in college during a 1911 prayer meeting to go to Africa. Where she had a vision of people there before the judgment seat weeping and saying, No one ever told us you died for us. During, while she was in prayer, she had this vision of her African brothers and sisters saying, nobody ever told us that Christ died for us. So she endeavored to go. And just getting there wasn't easy. She was discouraged by the president of the college, Central Texas College, where she studied. He said, there's plenty of Africans here, for one. And then when, when she, she said, I don't care, I'm going. This is where it's God's called me. She had limited resources. It took her several years just to get enough money to buy a ticket on a boat over. And she ended up in uh, Liberia, uh, January of 1914. She had a long career establishing schools and teaching children to read the Bible. And one of these journeys, when she ended up having four children, she was walking on a 200-mile journey while traveling on foot to get resources for her missionary school. And by the way, she died at age 100 in Tyler, Texas. When she was walking with her kids and they were just about to, to give up hope and strength and they were, the trial seemed too big, she broke out into this hymn and sang it to them. When your path is dark and your heart shrinks with fear, when all seems lost and failure seems near, keep a clear, steady mind. Just work, watch, and pray. Jesus knows, loves, cares, and will your cause defray? Just keep on, victories ahead. Look to Jesus, who multitudes fed. He's the Son of God, the living bread. He's the ruler and the great head. Just keep on going. Just keep on going on. When your spirit's low, when you've done your best and success seems slow, by faith, trust his word. Keep his righteous command. Fill your heart with song, whether on sea or land. Trials becoming joy. Father, I pray that our own hearts that maybe can't see clearly or are just stuck in the midst of trials that seem overwhelming to us would rest in this word that James gave us. Maybe we need a new perspective on them and you offer it here. You tell us oh, these trials are developing perseverance and perseverance must finish its work so you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. We know we're not mature and complete, but for those of us who want to be, to reach that telos, that end, may we have a new perspective on these trials, the small ones, as well as the ones that seem like they just will never go away. Give us an eternal perspective and help us to look to Jesus, who is the author of our faith and its perfecter as well. I'll give us joy, that strange joy, a joy that only comes, I think, from people who really know that God is at work today and in the days ahead and certainly as we journey through this book of James and help us to see that the kingdom we're building ultimately is not our own. It's your kingdom that we're building. And as we see ourselves properly in that as servants who are scattered, we have the joy of participating in the building of a kingdom well beyond our own. I think that as well gives us the opportunity to experience trials of joy. Give us that mindset this day as we go forward and in the week ahead. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.